to turn in the Word of God this morning to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians chapter 2. In two weeks since we were here in this portion, so we will read from verse 13. But the focus of our attention this morning will be in the final two verses that we have in this chapter. The Word of God is a living Word, a mighty Word, a life-changing Word. Let us have the humility to desire and open our hearts to its sweet influences, even as it is read in our hearing here this morning. So First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, through the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul writes, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. They both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they might be saved, to fill up their sins always. The wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. We, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavor the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye, in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming, for ye are our glory and joy. Amen. The Lord bless His Word as we desire. Let's still our hearts in prayer. Let's all seek His face. Let's come before Him with that final longing where we empty ourselves of anything that may hinder and long for the Lord to speak to us. Lord, we do understand ourselves to be Creatures of sin, we're glad that there is shelter at the cross through the work of Jesus Christ. We're thankful that it will carry everyone called into Christ, into union with the Son of God. It will bring every last one of them home. Oh God, that will be glory. Be glory for me. Lord, I pray for each of us as a congregation that thou wilt stamp eternity on our eyeballs. We are so time-bound. May the eternal word this day help us to live with a greater appreciation for what eternity is and what is of truly eternal worth. May the Spirit of God be our companion in the preaching of the word filling the Holy Ghost, filling the preacher rather with his power and meeting each and every one before us 
in such a way that they will experience the Holy Ghost to hear the word aright and know the profit of the word in their lives. Lord, we need thee. We cast ourselves upon thee. May we know that tremendous help that only thou canst give. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. While there is much about the Christian life that is very much individual and personal, I can't be saved for you, you can't be saved for me. There are many things that we experience in and of ourselves in our walk with the Lord and as believers. Yet at the same time, it is also highly relational and impossible to divorce from its inherent community. The Christian faith is a faith that brings men and women together. It unites them around a common faith. And whenever we read the Word of God, we see that Christians worship together. They are instructed together. They pray together. They have an ordinance of remembrance of what Christ has done. They do that together. And more and more, as you read through the Word of God, the various things are done together. Christians come together and enjoy these things collectively. And even if you are such a believer that happens to live in a time and place where there is no Christian community, we are commanded to give out the message in order that there may be a response that would establish a community so you can start enjoying those things together, that we evangelize and bring the gospel to lost souls so that a community may be established for the glory of God. Everywhere you find a genuine Christian community, you will have a body of people that don't just do life together, if we can use that term, but they are also going to spend eternity together. We're going to spend the rest of our existence together, not just here, but in eternity itself. There's no getting away from one another. <laughs> we are in union with Christ, called unto Him, so to ever be with the Lord together. And because of this, there ought to exist between believers a fierce loyalty and love. If you're going to spend the rest of your life with someone, you're going to have the, the need to express loyalty and love. I mean, when a couple get married, that's part of what you, you help them to see, the commitment, the loyalty that must be there, and the love that must exist. It's foundational. It's utterly essential for a proper relationship and Believers ought to express the same. They ought to express a fierce love and loyalty to one another because, well, they're never going to get rid of one another. Paul had been accused of not really loving this community here at Thessalonica. He had seemed to an observer, disappeared. Uh, you will read in Acts chapter 17 of what happened there and, and the fierce opposition that transpired and them coming and, and, and really attacking the house of Jason and then after all that takes place, then uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they decide, we're going to leave for a time. We're going to get out of here. We're going to vacate the place, allow things to calm down, but we will return. But that return did not occur. And as time transpired, then the accusations would rise from those that despised the gospel, that hated what Paul was about and what they were endeavoring to do, they would bring all these accusations. We've looked at them in previous weeks, and a part of that argument that Paul brings in the opening verses of chapter 2 is really militating against the accusations that were brought in relation to him, the false motives and, and intent that he had in, in his ministry there in that city. But there had been this question then, does he really love us? 
Does he really care? And last time we looked at verses 17 and 18 where the apostle underlines the fact that we were taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart. We didn't forget about you. We endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. They longed to see them in person. For that reason, verse 18 explains, they would have come. Even I, Paul, I, I wanted. I don't, don't, don't think it's just about Timothy because Timothy had come with this letter. We'll find that out very soon. But Paul himself wanted to come once and again. But Satan hindered. And we looked at that last time, the, the hindering activity of Satan in the work of God. Beloved, we do not get to live and labor in the kingdom of Christ unhindered. We are facing a foe, someone who is constantly militating against everything we endeavor to do for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You read this and when you hear the TV preachers, you might just wonder, well, why did, why did Paul just bind Satan? <laughs> just bind him, Paul. That's what they would tell you to do in these days. But you can see that Satan, in a certain sense, well, had liberty to actively work to hinder the desires of those that were propagating the gospel of Christ. Again, we looked at that. I showed you that it doesn't make Satan sovereign or anything. I'll not go over old ground, but you can see him certainly working against and showing opposition to the gospel. We are not to be ignorant of his devices. We should not at all. And there is much opposition, as we often sing the language of Martin Luther, for still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. And Luther had it right. And he knew it. He experienced it in his day, and Satan's activity has not lessened. He is just as actively pursuing the downfall of the preaching of Christ and to hinder those that promote the glory of the Son of God. So, with this that had been going on, in verses 19 and 20, Paul reassures the church that he loved them and communicates that in light of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these verses may be skipped over very quickly, but there's enough for us to think about and meditate upon this morning before we get any further into chapter 3. What we're considering then this morning is viewing the church in light of Christ's return. Viewing the church in light of Christ's return. Two main points. First, the terms that describe Paul's love for the church or how he viewed the church. What are the terms that he uses? Well, you can see it in verse 19 and 20. He uses the term hope, joy, crown of rejoicing. Then verse 20, he talks about glory and joy again. In large part, what Paul says in these verses relates to the particular blessing of seeing the fruit of his ministry. And we want to consider these terms in that light, that he will see the fruit of his labor. So first we have here in the list of the terms given is hope. What is our hope? When Paul uses this term hope. It is important for us to remember that it is not in that uncertain sense that we often use the word. Like, I hope it will be good weather for VBS or whatever the case might be. I hope. And we're kind of just clutching at that, just wondering if that will be the case. There's no certainty about it. But the hope of the gospel and the way the apostle uses the word hope is not in that uncertain sense. He uses it with tremendous sense of, of certainty. And he is absolutely sure 
of these things. And so when he uses it here, and I'm not going to go through the various scriptures that relate to hope to prove that, you can do it for yourself. But we understand that same meaning here in this passage as well. Paul uses this term hope in relation to the Thessalonians because of what they meant to him in light of Christ's return. Albert Barnes says this, Their conversion and salvation was one of the grounds of his hope of future blessedness. It was an evidence that he was a faithful servant of God and that he would be rewarded in heaven. As Paul looked at these believers, as he looked at the the fruit of his labor, as he could see it in time, he was assured it would be also something he would see in a coming day that would all come to light at the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. He had a real sense of hope. Now, now Christ was the foundation of his hope in relation to his salvation, but he had a hope where, as he looked at them, he could see that his labor was not in vain in the Lord. He viewed them in this light that my labor is not in vain in the Lord. And he could see that right to the very end of time when Christ would return. And so they were his hope, a hope of blessedness, a hope that would, would, would somehow gird up and be even more joy to his soul, as we'll see in just a moment, in light of what lay ahead for him as a believer, the future blessedness that is there for every child of God. So he says, he uses the term hope. He also uses the term joy in verse 19 and in verse 20. And the meaning is the same. Verse 20 is really underlining what he has already stated in verse 19. This church was a source of joy to Paul. Of course, again, this was true in time. And and while they were not the foundation of his joy, let's not get that wrong, the fact that Paul's name was written in heaven was the foundation of his joy. No matter what else was going on, that was the the unshakable truth that nothing could destroy or take away. His name was written in heaven, and that brought him joy. But, but he is looking to this church, he is looking to these believers, and he says that they, they bring a sense of joy. And this builds upon the hope. What is our hope or joy? And what I'm, as I'm looking to the future, as I'm looking to the coming of Jesus Christ, you bring me joy, and you will bring me joy. What he witnessed in their lives supplemented his joy as a servant of Jesus Christ. On the day of glorification, Paul is going to see, and I say it in that way because it's not yet happened. Paul, this has not transpired in the sense of the events that he is referring to is at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll look at that in just a moment. But that's yet future, and Paul is yet waiting for the manifestation of this joy that these believers would bring to his soul. He would see, he will see, that by the message he believed and preached, those at enmity with God are brought into the very presence of God, and this will, again, supplement his joy in eternity. He's going to see that, again, his life's labor was not in vain. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. It's not in vain. He had given his heart to the gospel. He had poured out his life to these believers, and he anticipates a day where that will manifest itself in joy. 
joy that no doubt, as I say, is already there, but will manifest itself even more so on the day of Christ's coming and appearing. When you think about this, and you think about what Paul is saying here, that the hope and joy, and we'll look in just a moment at the, the, the glory and crown of rejoicing, but, but just to pause for a minute and realize that clearly, as Paul looks and anticipates the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and what will unfold on that day, there are things that will make it even more wonderful than it already is just simply because of Jesus Christ and what He has done for us personally. One writer, in relation to this, says, There are degrees of glory in heaven, probably according to the measures and degrees of service we have done for God on earth. There is, no doubt, an equality of glory there as to the essentials, but not with respect to the accidentals. Besides the joy and satisfaction which the ministers of Christ are partakers of in heaven, in common with other glorified saints, they have an additional joy and glory from the success of their pious and painful labors, which God has crowned with the conversion and edification of many souls. End quote. Degrees of glory in heaven. One soul meets me at God's right heaven, right hand. My heaven will be two heavens in Emmanuel's land. Degrees of glory. And Paul is revealing this. As they begin to enter into this despondent spirit, thinking, we don't matter to him. He doesn't care about us. He's never coming back. Paul underlines the fact that that is not the case by presenting the truth. No, no. What is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? He is laying out terms that emphasize that, that as we think of heaven and the hope and joy of heaven itself, He adds in to that hope and joy them. Not just Christ, who certainly is the very foundation of our hope and our joy. But supplementing that is the fact of the fruit of His labor. What He observed in them. What will transpire in the glory to come when they are standing there in heaven as evidence of His labors for Christ. He uses the term glory in verse 20. Ye are our glory and joy. And we may think, well, you know, does that not militate against what he says to those in Galatia? Galatians chapter 6 where he says, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a sense in which this word can be rightly used. It's not, it's not removing the, the, the meaning of that term or, or his argument that the only glory I have is the cross of Christ. He's not contradicting himself. The Bible, in the book of Proverbs, it talks about the glory of children are their fathers. And the glory of young men is their strength. Or a woman's hair is her glory. In other words, there are certain attributes, certain things that, that come alongside in a person 
that are their glory. And that's the case here. Paul is not removing his emphasis and boast in the cross by saying this. He is rejoicing in the fact that added to the glory of the cross itself are these souls that are gathered in because of it. Again, John Calvin says on this passage, we must, however, infer from this that Christ's ministers, and you can put anyone who labors for the Lord, Christ's ministers will, on the last day, according as they have individually promoted His kingdom, be partakers of glory and triumph. Let them therefore now learn to rejoice and glory in nothing but the prosperous issue of their labors when they see that the glory of Christ is promoted by their instrumentality. End quote. And what Calvin's saying there is, in light of, of this, in light of what is to come for the believer, that there should be a joy even presently when there is issuing from their labors a work that brings glory and honor to Christ. When the glory of Christ is being promoted by their instrumentality. He uses also the term crown of rejoicing or crown of glorying if you have a margin. And you can see then how it, it just develops this idea of glory that we've already looked at that we have used in verse 20. But he says crown of rejoicing. And when you read the Bible, you will find that there are different crowns that are referred to. And again, it just, it just backs up this whole idea that whenever, whenever there's a, a giving of reward in heaven, there will be these crowns. And some of them, they seem to, to, to be specifically given for certain things. So we have the incorruptible crown referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. It says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So that's, that's the way. You're in a race, you run, but one receives the prize. That's it. So run that you may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible and here we're encouraged then to, to run after a prize. And everyone who runs after a prize will receive this incorruptible prize, this incorruptible crown. There's also the crown of righteousness. Paul refers to near the end of his life. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, where he records the well-known words, I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. James refers to the crown of life. James 1.12, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation, for when he is tried he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Then you have a crown of glory that Peter refers to in 1 Peter chapter 5. And I'll just read for the context from verse 1 there, where he says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, he shall receive a crown of glory, 
that fadeth not away. And here we have a crown of rejoicing. I'm not going to get into all the specifics relating to all these crowns. I'm just showing to you that the the New Testament reveals to us different language in relation to to crowns that will be expected to be received on that day when the rewards are given out. And here it's a crown of rejoicing. A crown of glory. It is that sense of of glory, as we've said already, that sense of of, of seeing the, the crowning of His labors. That when Christ will appear, there will be time given over where Paul will stand and by the leading of Jesus Christ, it will be pointed out the very labors that he gave himself to and the fruit of that labor. And he will have it pointed out to him infallibly that here is the fruit of your labor and he will rejoice in it. All of those efforts given to win souls and disciple them to bring them to maturity. The Lord will not ignore any of them. So we don't just glory in the cross. We also will be able to glory in the product of the cross. The fruit of the cross. Especially as it relates to what we have done for Christ. That's what Paul's saying. I know that you're maybe in your mind thinking, well, my only grounds for acceptance with God and going into heaven is the work of Jesus Christ. We are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is true. But you read through the New Testament, you will see a sense of the apostles impressing upon their own hearts as well as upon others, living for reward. Living in such a fashion, expecting reward. Now, we understand this. Especially especially here, in this part of the world, you find it in a way that is less common in, in the UK. You find that, that Parents will encourage, and and even the young people themselves will try to encourage themselves to work really hard to get scholarships. Reward for their labor. So they're less burdened down with debt. We we understand it. And, And actually, when we read the New Testament, we see that the same applies. That as we labor for Christ, our labor is not in vain. Not just in the sense that that God will make sure to use our labors in some mysterious way, but actually at His appearing, when He comes and everything comes together and everything is wrapped up as it were, at that point He will reveal to us that our labor has not been in vain. The way in which we have influenced others, the product of our labors as we've promoted Christ, and preach the cross of the Son of God. Is it any wonder then, when you go back to the beginning of the chapter, that the Apostle Paul was bold? And we looked at that already. The, the various characteristics that he had, and he was, we were bold in our God. He continued to preach. It didn't matter what happened. It didn't matter how he was treated. He was bold in God to speak the gospel of God with much contention. You couldn't stop him because 
if he would stop, be stopped, if he would be hindered, then he would actually be in some way saying, I don't want any more reward. I, do, I, don't, want, <laughs> I don't want to, to, to accumulate that reward that the Lord has promised to those who live for him. And so he presses on. He continues being bold, pre- preaching Christ in the midst of tremendous opposition and persecution. He knows there's coming this day. And so in his mind, he finds it insane that he would be criticized or, or some way accused of not caring about those that he labored for or on behalf of. What do you mean? <laughs> that you'd bring a charge that I've forgotten about you, I don't care about you? Do you not realize when the Lord Jesus brings it all together at the end, you will be my hope and joy and crown of rejoicing? I will never be able to forget you. Eternity itself will be a constant reminder of my life given over to you to bring the gospel to your city in your day and constantly I will be reminded of you and how the Lord blessed my efforts with you. So what then is the time that determines all of this? When is this all going to happen? We have the terms that describe Paul's love or how he viewed the church in light of Christ's return, but we have then the time that determines the significance of this love that he had for them. What's the time that's in light in all of this? It is, of course, the time of Christ's coming. Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? If ever a Christian lived in light of eternity, I think we can say it was the Apostle Paul. His whole life is just completely given over to eternal matters. When you read through his writings, it, it, it permeates everything. Everything. He's constantly, constantly bringing us back to this fact that there is, there is a judgment seat. There is a day of reckoning. There is a time where we will be rewarded. There, there is a need to continue to press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Just constant language that reminds us that he was constantly thinking about eternity. He never forgot about it. His love, therefore, for the Thessalonians, his relationship with them was not a passing fad. He knew it would have significance not only in time, but in eternity itself. And whenever the Lord Jesus returns, it will bring about a number of events. And I want to point out one of them to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Turn with me there, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, for context, we'll read from verse 1. I want you to see that he is addressing God's people. He is speaking to the church. And he says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So you see again, he's, 
He's living with eternity in view. And he's writing, instructing, but most believers don't keep this in mind. They just run around. And, but Paul is constantly saying, we know. And really what he's saying is, we should know this, but Christians forget it. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. Again, this is, this is Paul. This is how he lived. Many believers don't really think this way. They don't groan the way they should, but he did. Verse 3, If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For if that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body to be present with the Lord. Again, there's Paul speaking. This is the way Christians should think, but often we don't. But this is, this is his mind, thinking eternally. Verse 9, then, he says, Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is the believer. Now, you read the word judgment, you may, again, infer from that, Something negative. No. This is not a seat of punishment. The seat of punishment for the believer is the cross of Christ. Never forget it. And even just to underline that, I, I feel it to be an important distinction for Christians to speak in such a way as to keep in mind the fact that they are never punished. And Christians will come. I've heard them. They've said to me, I feel like I'm being punished. No, you're not being punished. What you just said can't be possible, possibly true. You, you're a believer. You profess to know Christ. You cannot be punished. Otherwise, you're denying the very cross work of Jesus Christ. The wrath of God was poured on Him. He bore the iniquity of us all. He took the wrath of God for us. You cannot be punished. You may be disciplined, but you can't be punished. But there is a judgment seat. There is a standing before God for every Christian. A day of discernment of our works. And you look at it. That everyone may receive the things done in his body. According to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Is it going to, in the language he used in his previous letter, is it going to burn up as wood hen stubble? Or will the day of testing find out that there is gold, silver, and precious stones. Paul saw a day of standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And this happens when he returns, after he returns, when he appears. So you go back to our text, and he talks about, are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? You're going to be there in his presence like the rest of us, and you're going to receive according to the deeds done in the body. And that's what he has in mind. That's what he has in view in relation to all of this. And he is saying, look, on that day, you are my hope, joy, and crown of rejoicing. 
as I see the fruit of my labor in you and what has been accomplished in my efforts there in your city. What a day of joy that will be for me. Again, writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2, he says of them, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. It seems in that language that Paul sees himself not just in time presenting them as a chaste virgin, but even perhaps there may be at the judgment Paul aligning himself with those that he was influential in their lives and saying, I present you as a chaste virgin to Christ, the presentation before the Lord, whenever all of our works and labors are tested for their value. Paul anticipates a day when the value of all his labor would be revealed. It will be at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He will deal with this coming, of course, in more detail later on. We'll get to that, so I'm not going to get into the coming itself and the Lord Jesus and His appearing. But for now, let us see what He is dealing with here and look at it in this fact that when He comes, there will be a judgment and there will be the reward for our labors or lack thereof. Now, when you think of all of this, there is the pressing question that I face, and you must face, do I live in light of this? Of a day of reward? I think there's a temptation. Certainly there's a tremendous emphasis, and rightly so, upon the doctrine of free justification in Jesus Christ alone, received by faith alone, But we do ourselves a disservice if we think that what we do in this life doesn't really matter. That how we live doesn't have, in some sense, eternal consequence. It does. How you live Every day. Or let me word it this way. In a certain sense, to some degree, perhaps still shrouded in, a, in an element of mystery, every moment of eternity, and I understand the limitations of even the language there, but every moment in eternity will remind you of how you lived on earth. If you lived carelessly, it will be evident. There will be others who will have supplemental joy because they poured out their souls for the cause of Christ. And then there will be others and they will get into heaven by the skin of their teeth. And while they will rejoice in the work of Jesus Christ and what He has done, they won't have the supplemental joy of a life of labor for Christ.
That is sobering. Sobering. I wonder if you go into eternity today, will you be happy with the fruits of your labors? Now, let me underscore, not one of us can save a soul. Neither you nor me. But if you're going to catch fish, you don't stand where there's no water. And if you're ever going to have an influence upon lives in terms of bringing them into an understanding of the gospel, you have to actually be about the business of fishing. You have to cast the line. You have to lower the net. Now, there are opportunities within this congregation, ministries that are part of this work, in which you may find it limiting to some degree because of your work. You can't really do much evangelism, but you can be part of those ministries that are, are evangelistic in their focus. And every time you participate, <clears throat> again, the lament of all of our hearts is we can't save anyone but at least we're in the place where there's water. And we never know, and I find it a marvelous thing, in my own experience, a marvelous thing, that the surprise, the surprise of, of, of the occasions whenever, whenever you get a bite. You're fishing, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and then there's the tug. And it, it takes you by surprise. It's many times you, you have no idea and then there's the bite in the line, and you have the joy of reeling in that soul, pointing them to Christ. But that can only happen if you're at the water. So I ask you, child of God, are you fishing? Are you fishing? Not just fishing, but even in relation to the Lord's people, are you, are you in part way developing their maturity? I think that's included as well. The contribution, some soul, some water, God gives the increase. There's different parts of all of the work, but you have to be in the work. You have to be actively involved. And it just doesn't happen by, by doing nothing. <laughs> and so even in relation to your, your kind of day-to-day -day activities, you, you need to prepare yourself for the fact that even as you go out and you labor in your employment, that you might actually find yourself passing by a creek or a pond and you're by the water and now is an opportunity to fish. You weren't looking for it, but you got into conversation with someone, are you ready? Are you ready to start fishing? And so do you have anything in your hand or in your pocket that you may give them. And have you a word and season for them to speak to them and encouragement in regards to their spiritual condition. Paul was so given over to laboring in part, not just because the love of Christ constrained him, but also because he understood that there would be eternal reminders of the life that he lived. His eternity would reflect the life that he lived 
I find that very sobering. I don't want anyone to go away today and be discouraged because your circumstances in life make it impossible for you to maybe do some of the ministries in this church. I understand there are limitations. I've often said, and I say it again, there are seasons in our lives. Seasons of preparation, seasons of focus upon our own family, our children, especially as mothers. There are seasons, but time is rolling on. It's disappearing from every last one of us. We will all soon, those of us in Christ, be in a place of eternity. Where there is no more time. But there will be the constant reminder of the kind of life that we lived reflected by the reward or lack of reward for our labors. And I just want to underscore that. I want us to be very clear about it, and I want us to think about how we're living our lives in light of that reality. When I thought about all this, I thought about the Lord Jesus Christ. I thought about how motivated He was. And we're going to see it tonight. Twelve years of age. Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? From his earliest years, comprehending that there was a greater purpose. And his whole life is poured out entirely for that purpose. You must work while it is day, because the night cometh when no man can work. And his whole life is active ministry, certainly as, as the spotlight of Scripture shines upon those, those three years or so. There, there is this evidence of the fact that he is relentlessly in pursuit, not just of the Father's will and obedience to everything, but, but there is a sense of reward. That it's not in vain. That he will see, he will see all of his sufferings prevail in reward. In Acts chapter 20, when Paul's exhorting the elders at Ephesus, and he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. I was thinking about that text, and Paul is exhorting the leaders, but there to take care of the church, but the church of God, the church of God which He hath purchased with His own blood. The Son of God purchased the church with His own blood. He gave everything to buy the church to say it is mine. And in a very real sense, what Paul says here in these verses, waters or hope or joy or crown of rejoicing, will be said ultimately about Christ to all of the elect, to everyone for whom He shed His blood, to everyone He gathers in to the sheepfold. They are His hope, His joy, His crown of rejoicing. They are evidence 
of the fruit of the labors that he gave himself to. That which he understood even in John 12 when he says, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And he speaks this of himself as a corn of wheat that must fall and die to bring the harvest. And that harvest for Christ is all the elect from every corner of the globe. He gathers them in. And they all are his hope and joy and crown of rejoicing. But isn't it a wonder that He will, those who are heirs and joint heirs with Christ, will actually enter into this same joy. That He will ascribe recognition to those that He used as instruments to bring about the gathering in of the elect What are we living for? What are you living for? What are the motivating influences in your life? What are your ambitions? What are your goals? What are your desires? Scrape away all the external factors that are in your life and and, and really get to the the foundation, get to the bottom and ask yourself honestly, what am I living for? Only you can answer that. What are you living for? What matters most? To help you along, let me put it this way. If you were to really analyze your own life, and look at it, you yourself, scrutinizing it yourself, in what way does your life reveal whether or not the things you say matter really do matter? Does your life evidence the so-called priorities that you claim to have as a Christian? Listen, I have to do this as well. I have to ask myself as I stand before men and women and I meant to be a man of God given entirely to the cause of Christ solely to follow Him and promote Christ in everything I do and say and yet does my life constantly reflect the bottom line this is really all that matters? Now, if you're anything like me, you're in a constant battle against the contradictions of your heart. And I trust that our text here today will help you to militate against those contradictions and not make excuses for them, but again, recalibrate and begin to ask afresh, perhaps maybe even for the first time, Am I really living with eternity's values in view? Do I want to be liked? Is that my goal? You're living for time. 
Do I just so prioritize wealth and prosperity and material gain? Living just for time. When these things, and they, God may gift them to us, and there's nothing wrong with them in a certain measure, but let's scrape away what is the driving, what is the driving, motivating influences in our hearts and lives. And is eternity truly in our view? What is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Will it not be you there when he comes? For ye are our glory and joy. What a heart. What affections. Beloved, all we can do is say, God help me. The Lord bless His Word. Let's bow together in prayer. As we're bowed before the Lord, There are many of you here and you've served Christ in many faithful ways for many years. You know you're not perfect, but you're not alone in that. But I want you to really think, not just about yourself, I want you to think about the upcoming generation I want you to look at the trend that whereas there was a day when it seemed, it seemed as if, well, it wasn't every young person loved the Lord and was doing, seeking to do what they can. I want, I want you to see that we're living in a time where Satan truly is hindering. And young people are fighting more and more in relation to what to prioritize. And there are far more gadgets Far more pastimes, far more games, far more influences through technology that make them very distracted. And they are struggling, they're struggling to really know what it is to live in light of eternity. Instant messages that come over the phone, notifications every five seconds, everything doesn't allow them to... It binds their mind into time. And it's preventing them from meditating upon eternity and living in light of it. Pray. Pray for our young people as well as for yourselves. Lord, In many ways, the devil has done a number on us. <clears throat> In some ways, he has succeeded so in such a 
influential way to, to stifle the hearts of this generation from living in light of eternity. Lord, we pray that Thou wilt set us free from the chains that bind us to time where we can barely breathe, never mind truly spend time meditating upon eternity. We pray that Thou wilt loosen those fetters and break those chains and set Thy people free that they will not merely lay up for time and treasure where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves can break through and steal, but to lay up treasure in heaven Lord, none of us know how short our time is. I have no idea how many, how many moments will be afforded to me. But I pray for myself and for this congregation that Thou wilt make us to be fruitful, to be wise and discerning in the use of our time, to understand the balance of life, as well as the need to truly labor for eternity. Give us the burden and the strength and the will to serve Christ. And may we enter in to the rewards of the Son of God. May we be instruments, some sowing, some watering, and thou wilt give the increase. Your prayer, bless her afternoon, be with us in her homes, and bring us back here again to worship Thee. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all Thy people now and evermore. Amen.